Hello again, and welcome back to Firing On Film, and part two of our top ten Christmas films. Let's get right back into the chat. So, into top fives then. Oliver, you want to give us your number five? <laughs> Elf. Oh! John Favreau, 2003. Um, I frankly disagree. I genuinely don't know how you can look at Will Ferrell and hate this performance. It's, it is so pure. Like, if, if you're thinking, oh, he's annoying, oh, he's whimsical, oh, he's childlike, that's the whole point. That's why it's so Christmassy. That's why Buddy is such a lovable character. Like, the, he is. He's absolutely embodied what would happen in this weird scenario where a child has managed to get to the North Pole. And it's a weird situation where the two humans that live there in Father Christmas and Mrs. Claus aren't the ones that raised him. But, hey-ho, we get Elf out of the end of it. And the fact that because he's human, he's terrible at being an elf. Like, he calls himself a cotton-headed ninny muggins. Now I've sworn on the podcast. Because he only made, what was it, 85 Etch-A-Sketches in an hour, as opposed to the 2,000 that the elves regularly make. And yet, when he gets to New York, amongst people, there are certain things he is superhuman at. When he, when he makes up that um, floor of the toy store with, like, the Empire State having been created and having drawn the Mona Lisa on an etch sketch and had a working train system going around because he thinks Santa's coming. Um, when he creates all those snowballs in the time it takes Michael to make just the one and then he shoots them. And there's all those like motifs that go back to old school action films, like where he's doing the diving shot and hits that kid in the face. There's the one running away and he says to Michael, snowball. And he lobs it and it takes about five seconds to loop in the air. And then he gets a headshot on the back of his head. A really great cameo role from Peter Dinklage as well as the South Pole elf. And you just like, you cringe the entire time that Buddy is in there with him. But you know, it's not just, oh, it's one of those bad natured jokes of the time. That is what Buddy would have done. And... You get why he did it. You also get why Miles is as angry as he is. Um, and yeah, just every single performance in it is incredibly heartwarming. Ed Asner, as well as Santa Claus, who I know is the guy who voiced Carl in Up. Um, he's, he's, you know, he's not as good as Richard Attenborough, but he's a damn good Father Christmas. Um, and just the little things as well, like the line where, Bob, where his dad, Bob Newhart and Buddy are working on the sleigh. And and Buddy really sincerely asks his dad, what do the kids ha think happened to all the uh, cookies and milk and carrots in the night? And and Bob Newhart's like, well, there's a rumour going around that the parents eat them. And Buddy's like, what? That's ridiculous. It's just, it's so lovable. And so, like, when he drinks the coffee and his dad's like, you don't have to drink that, Buddy. Thank you. Just little lines like that are brilliant. But yeah, 100% number five, Elf. Yeah, it's not that I don't like it, but I just think that, that I can see why people might not do if it's too much for them. Um, just for the sake of year 10s and year 11s who may be listening, Father Christmas is real. So, yeah, <laughs> that's where your presents are going to come from, remember. You know, you know, don't pay any attention to what Oliver just said. <laughs> so, my number five is almost a rebuttal to a comment that Gemma made earlier about gender stereotypes. My number five is the holiday. Um, now I, just to I say stand that corrected. <laughs> to say that you didn't expect Fair it to come, he said that he would have in his honourable. It's my five. Admittedly, I do think it is probably probably the soppiest, cheesiest film that I like. Um, sorry to offend you even more, Gemma, but giving it a recent rewatch, I can't believe how successful of a career Cameron Diaz has had because she is mediocre at best. <laughs> that whole opening scene where she's... I think there's a bit of bypass. naivety in you there, Adam. <laughs> I think we know that mediocre and stunningly good-looking can um, sometimes be uh, be something that helps. So you can be mediocre. We have mediocre pop stars. We have mediocre lots of things. But when they're as gorgeous as she is, I think... I th Think I have a suspicion that that may have played a part in her career. Preach. <laughs> oh, that's why. Oh, now I've cracked it. The secret to success. <laughs> um, 
So this is a film that me and Amy went to go and watch. We'd only been together a couple of months at this point, and it was just, you know, 2006, Christmas film, whatever, we'll go and watch it. not looking forward to it at all. I thought, I'm going to sit here, and I'm not going to enjoy this whatsoever. I enjoyed it more than Amy enjoyed it. She finds it weird that I like it as much as I do. Um, I think I like the, the whole thing of the house swap. Um, I it, Like Pathos, if we're talking about Pathos, Kate Winslet's character is Iris. Like, you poor sod, you've been out, you've you've bought a really thoughtful present for that scumbag Rufus Sewell, right? He's opened it in front of you in, in, in the office, and then he sat back and watched you as he announces his engagement to somebody else. You do you, girl. And then, I think you're totally right, Jack Black, totally, you don't expect him in this film. There is a film that I'm going to talk about, spoiler alert slightly, on the musicals podcast, right? that has Jack Black in it and was released two months prior to this film, totally different roles, totally different thing. Just shows you how good of an actor Jack Black is. And again, I mentioned Eli Wallach's character before. I think that's really great. The one thing I did want to mention is Dustin Hoffman's cameo. Because if there's anything that's a good story that's come out of this film, it is that apparently they were shooting the scene in Blockbuster where Jack Black is going through all the music scores and all that kind of stuff. Dustin Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman, sorry, walked past, saw the lights, and just went, oh, what's going on here then? And they went, oh, we're, we're, we're making a film. Oh, do you want to do do cameo? Do you want to come and do Yeah, yeah, of course I'll do Yeah, so it was literally not planned at all. It was just that he walked past and saw a film crew and then ended up in the film pretty much playing himself because he can't go out anywhere. But again, yeah, I just think this is one of those where... It's totally Christmassy. You can you get the kind of it gets you in the, like Gemma, you said cozy. Totally, totally get that. Um, it's better than the word that I was going to use, which is nice, which I feel like is almost like an insult. But yeah, cozy is a really nice cozy Christmas film, and you can just you know fall into it. Gemma, what's your number five? Okay, I, I love that story about Dustin Hoffman there. I didn't know that. Imagine being that much of a legend that you can walk past a film being made and go, "Do you want me to be in it?" And they go, yeah, go on then. Now, you see, throughout my entire time at university, I lived in Chester, and we always saw them filming Hollyoaks around about. I used to hang around just trying to get in. Imagine just walking past going, do you want me to be in it? And I'm going, yeah, You mean they didn't on. know that. that the future award-winning Gemma Hale was walking <laughs> past and they did not get it? <laughs> oh, I walked into that one, didn't I? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> um, right, what is it, my number five? Okay, thanks for that, Adam. Um, Love Actually. Yeah, so Love Actually, one of uh, Ollie's, that was your honourable mention, wasn't it? Yeah, so I like that because um, of the themes that they explore in it and looking at what uh, what what love is and what love looks like, which I know seems like it's a bit of a, a soppy thing to say, but it is really interesting when you look at the different forms of love that you see in that film. So you see, obviously, the romantic love and things like that. But looking at things like the unrequited love with uh, Andrew Lincoln's character where he's in love with his best friend's wife, um, that ageing love with uh, Alan Rickman between uh, him and his wife, but also the platonic love between Billy Mack and his uh, his manager. And then the, I think one of the most powerful ones was the sibling love. So uh, I can't remember the characters' names, but basically she she has a brother that's struggling with some mental health problems. The phone rings and she needs to attend to her brother. And she gives up that opportunity with that man that she adores uh, to go and see to her brother, who he he isn't even grateful. You know, he tries to kind of hit her when she's there and stuff like that. That's so powerful to see what that, um, that former love... Uh, it's like I think one of the things that I noticed um, the absence is that uh, Richard Curtis didn't um, didn't put a same sex um, example of love in there. I don't know whether maybe because at the time I think it was early 2000, maybe 2003, that he just felt that that you know maybe we weren't ready for it or something. If he was making it now, he probably would have that there. Maybe Rowan. Um, Rowan Atkinson's character is a, a, a nod towards that, but we never see any kind of male partner of his. He's very camp, he's very effeminate, um, but we don't actually see the embodiment of who he might be in love with. But also, what a killer soundtrack it's got. You know, Joni Mitchell, I love Joni Mitchell. I love the the, the music in it with Eva Cassidy as well. 
um, and just some really good cheesy pop songs with Girl, Girls Aloud and all of those. So, yeah, great themes. I love it. I love Billy Mac. He's so funny when he's with Ant and Deck on the on that episode where he says uh kids don't buy drugs just become a rock star people give them to you <laughs> just what a great line uh i remember seeing it in cinema and howling out loud at that and then when he he doesn't know the difference between ant and deck so he calls them ant or deck that's just classic that's so good uh yeah love it really good just again another cozy film um christmas because it's set at christmas but isn't about christmas and cleverly intertwined as well now i've read that um richard curtis actually took the inspiration from things like pulp fiction with the different storylines going on that then you see how they connect the different characters then connect which uh is uh, less less violently done um but also quite cleverly done, I think, uh, when you see at the end how everybody joins together and who they're connected to in it. Yeah, number five, love, actually. You forgot the best storyline, which is Colin, who is the guy who is completely unlucky in love in England. And then he goes over to America and he has these literal supermodels throwing themselves at him. Like January Jones is in there. Denise Richards is in there. It's like these unbelievably gorgeous women just because he has a British accent are just like <laughs> immediately to him and he takes and then they return Har home for his mate as well he brings somebody back with him is like look what I've brought for you hello Harriet <laughs> yeah I love that bit <laughs> it is a really popular one and again it's one of these that is definitely going to be doing hard rotation this year I think when we get around to Christmas um, okay so my number four I think this is becoming the contemporary Diad's a Christmas film, Batman Returns is a Christmas film. And I found a really interesting article on it, actually, so I'm going to read you a little bit now. So this was from comicbook.com. So what makes Batman Returns a Christmas movie? For starters, it's set around Christmas time and there's no avoiding the decorative splendour. The holiday theme of the film goes well beyond the lights and tinsel. Instead, the film serves as something as a dark take on the normally bright, cheerful and almost sanitised feel of most Christmas films. With holiday films largely about family and the importance of togetherness, Batman Returns anchors its story on the characters who have no family. Penguin's thrown into a river by his parents and left to drown as an infant. Cheery. Selina Kyle only has her cats. Bruce Wayne, well, possibly he's comic's most famous orphan. These elements come together as something of a satire of the holiday genre, a tale of bleak, violent sadness juxtaposed against some twinkling lights. And then they mentioned some tweets by someone called Corey Massimino. So he tweeted, Batman Returns is a brilliant subversion and satire of the Christmas genre. Christmas films are primarily about family, of which Batman Returns has none. So I see why it's really mentioned. But the key is that it's about family, specifically people with none. People, people that Christmas forgot. Batman Returns is very much a Christmas movie. It's not about people coming together as a family. It's about how people cope with the lack of family. It's a Christmas movie by, for, and about total weirdos. Which I thought was quite... It put it a lot better than I could have put it, I think. It made my way onto my list, admittedly, really low down at first. I think I'd put it as number eight, so just above Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and before Nightmare Before Christmas. And then I really started to think about it. And I just thought, it was on there because I love it, because I think it's a great film. And it was on there because it's Batman. And it was on there because it was set around Christmas. And to be honest, I had to pad my list with some other stuff. But then I thought, actually... That is totally right, that article and those tweets, that it is a film about the absence of family at Christmas and actually what it would mean to have a family at Christmas and what it does mean to have a family at Christmas. And I think not to kind of put a down on everything, I think we're all going to have strange Christmases this year because we're not going to be able to have everybody around and all that kind of stuff. And I think if we're kind of flipping on its head a little bit, yeah, we're going to turn to things like The Grinch and The Night Before Christmas and Elf and The Holiday for coziness. But actually, if you want something that's relatable, let's go and have a look at Batman Returns, shall we? And I think that's the one that I think stands a stronger argument, apologies, Ollie, of what is your alternative Christmas film than Die Hard. And that's, for me, why Batman Returns is my number four. Gemma, do you want to give us your number four? Yeah, now this one actually couldn't come at a better time, given what you've just said about family. For the for the head person in it, the lead character, is his desire to have the perfect family whatever it is. Ollie's got it. Yeah, I can see you mouthing the word. It's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Every single one of the National Lampoon's 
he's always saying this is what family is all about whether it's the european vacation the uh the just a vacation one where they go to Wally world or this christmas vacation he's constantly saying this is going to be the perfect family christmas this is going to be the perfect family trip trip and that's all he wants right so your heart goes out to him because that's all he wants is just this perfect time um this one sort of divides us in our family my mum hates it because my mum does not like Chevy Chase at all. My dad loves it. And I'm with my dad on this one. He absolutely loves it. The, the bit that dad loves is the bit with the Christmas lights. So all the way through the film, he's trying to get these lights working uh, with the house covered in lights. Um, and, and it doesn't work. And then eventually he does. And you see the rest of the town, like an aerial shot of the rest of the town, their lights go off. And the meter whirring round my dad loves that he thinks that's hilarious um it there's just constant comedy it is laugh a minute if you like that kind of comedy it's laugh a minute with that christmas tree where they go and get that christmas tree and get it out of the field or the forest or whatever and drag it home and it's the size of one you'd put in a town square and then uh, <laughs> i can't help but laugh even think about it and then there's a squirrel or something or a i don't know some kind of american rodent but I think it's a squirrel or a possum. No, that's Australian, isn't it? Or whatever. Anyway, there's this animal inside the tree and it starts wreaking havoc. And so uh, Clark starts to fight it. And so that just goes crazy. But the real comedy is the next scene where he sat in bed and he's trying to read a magazine and everything's sticking to his hands because of the sap from the tree. And he's this magazine's going everywhere and he's trying to turn the light out and the light's falling all over the bed. It's it's absolute constant comedy when he gets stuck in the attic and then he dresses up in the fur coat. Oh, I'm actually laughing just thinking about it. Uh, but yeah, so it's the family theme, isn't it? Yeah. And then oh, with the cousin, Eddie, when Eddie turns up, <laughs> when Eddie turns up and he puts that, caravan on the uh or the rv on the drive and then he's going around he's going around the supermarket just putting loads of stuff into the trolley and then go oh are you going to pay for it oh, that's so nice of you brilliant absolutely classic love that film so good i I'm, i might watch that today actually i might watch that today after that just because I've, I've laughed all the way through talking about it that's it as soon as you get a film where you just go i miss i miss watching that i'm going to go and watch it again I think that's the good thing about these podcasts. But we're all realizing, oh, that's a great film. Let's go and watch that again. Uh, okay, Ollie, your number four, then, please. Uh, this has been mentioned. Uh, I can't remember. No, this was an honourable mention for you, actually, Adam. Uh, Gremlins, 1984, Joe Dante. I think looking back on my list, and I'm going to mention it now because there's only one more uh, film like this. The other two are actually very, very Christmassy films, but. A lot of my takes on this are quite alternative Christmas films, aren't they? So you've got Nightmare Before Christmas. You've got How the Grinch Stole it, Batman Returns. Um, some of the ones I like as well in honourable mentions, like uh, Black Christmas, stuff like that. And Gremlins, it like a Christmas horror film. Um, you know, the, the, the horror itself doesn't come from Christmas inherently. Um, but even though this is a Joe Dante film, it, it reeks of Spielberg this film and i think it was one he was director of this in all but name i think he wanted toby hooper to direct this originally who's the guy who did texas chainsaw massacre because he wanted someone who could bring in the horror <laughs> effectively and yeah toby hooper would do that for you i just you've got two very different films here that don't have any right to blend together at all like they should feel like two completely different films and they don't You've got this kind of whimsical town setting where it's Christmas. And the main character, it's very confusing how old he's meant to be because he has a job at a bank, but he still talks to his high school uh, teachers. And he get where the, the stuff he gets for Christmas is not what you would give someone who is working at a bank. He's getting like toy robots. And one of, is it Corey Feldman? It's one of the famous Corys of the 80s and 90s who is one of his best friends. And this Corey is quite obviously a child in this. Um, you've got so much iconic imagery from this, just the uh, just Gizmo himself, who is one of the cutest things ever put to film. People are losing their minds right now over Baby Yoda. And rightly so, Baby Yoda is adorable. Gizmo was doing this 30 years before. And 
just the little sat and like the law that they create around it, which they then go on to mock in the next film. I really love that. Um, and some of the film, some of the scenes in this that put it to a fifteen are horrific. The mum going around the house and just one by one killing off these evil gremlins. Like there's the one where it stuck its head in a blender, so she switches the blender on. There's one that she locks into a microwave. There's one that's in the Christmas tree and it attacks her. So Billy comes in, grabs a sword, you know, that thing that most Americans have on the side of their on the side of their walls in their house, picks up a sword, chops off its head, and the head goes into the fire. And just some of the things that are in this film are so dark. And like, spoiler alert, I guess. The death of the fight, like the boss gremlin, Stripe, I think he's called, because he's got a mohawk, because that's how you know he's a bad guy. His death is horrifying when they expose him to... Like, it's it's the stuff of nightmares. And this doesn't sound very Christmassy, but no one would question this because it's definitively, like, Gizmo is a Christmas gift and it's set around the holiday. And there's that, oh, that story out of nowhere that uh, Phoebe Cates' character tells of why she doesn't believe in Christmas because her dad had dressed up as Father Christmas tried to go down the chimney, slipped and broke his neck. And that's how she found out that there was... And Billy's literally looking at her like, where is this coming from? What? I'm not ready to hear this. Um, side note, I may have gone dressed as that dad for a Halloween party once. So I went dressed as a Santa with a broken neck and then I explained that. Um, but yeah, it's... I think you're right, Adam. I think you do need to watch this one. Even though it is a 15, I do think you need to watch this one fairly young. Because this is one of those 15s where people look at Gizmo and they think, oh, this is a nice little kid's film. It's like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> this has got some dark stuff in there and kids might not be. But luckily, like, because, because Spielberg's fingerprints are all over this, as scary as it does get, I don't think it is particularly overwhelming for kids. I think this is, actually, if you want, you know, if you're interested in getting your kids into horror, uh, as weird a phrase as that sounds, this is a really good starting point. You know, beyond once they've got through the horrors of certain Disney films, this is a really good way to introduce them to horror. And if they don't like this, then you don't, you know, you don't show them Alien, you don't show them Halloween. Um, but, um, like, this is a really good, like, little because um, it feels weirdly John Hughes as well. I don't think he was involved in this, but there's certain elements of this that feel like, you know, the old woman that everyone in the town hates, but everyone's te terrified of her for some reason. That, that to me feels like quite a John Hughes character, um, you know, in that she's just so stereotypically, clichéably hateable, <laughs> even though we're given no backstory to her. But yeah, Gremlins... I've not seen it in far too long. I definitely need to watch it again because it's hilarious. It covers everything. Horror, family, Christmas, humour, just everything. It's brilliant. There's a couple of things that you mentioned. So um, the the confusion about how old Billy is, I totally got that because mm. I thought, here's a guy who's working and then his dad, he's like, he goes and gets him a gremlin. He goes and gets him a mogwai because he's for his kid for Christmas and he wraps it up and it's like, oh, here's your new pet. And then, you know, his, his mate's younger than he is, all that kind of stuff. Mm. The Phoebe Cates thing, which I I did, it took me by left field. I was like, what? Okay, so this is a whole different subplot. Your dad got stuck down the chimney and that's why you don't like Christmas because he decided to go down the chimney with all your presents. Um, and then, yeah, I, I was totally caught off guard. Actually, I was watching it while I was cooking and I heard the microwave ping right and i thought i didn't put anything in the microwave and then i turned to see like mushed gremlin mushed mogwai so i thought oh we wind that one again yeah and it, yeah it's totally blackly comic and it, it does have a weird footing because it's almost like you're trying to target a younger audience but yeah it's a 15 and you're supposed to be yeah my sisters definitely didn't watch it when they were 15 they watched it much younger than that and again it was one of them that they they kept themselves i didn't really get too much involved in that one um okay so number three Gemma, if you don't mind okie dokie number three so on number four i spoke about one of my dad's favorites uh number three i'm gonna uh speak about one of the ones i share with my mum as a favorite and it's muppets christmas carol um 
You know, the amount of times that story has been done and retold, um, the, as in, you know, the Dickens kind of story, is countless. I don't even know how many films or TV adaptations there must be of, uh, of A Christmas Carol, just done in so many different ways. And the Muppet one just tops them all. Uh, everything is expertly cast, like with um, Kermit being Bob Cratchit and... Um, with uh, Rizzo and Gonzo being the narrators and the fact they've got kind of like a straight guy and not the straight guy on that one with, you know, Rizzo the rat kind of um, wise cracking all the time through Gonzo trying to narrate things. And even just the genius of having the two old guys, I don't know what they're called in the Muppets. I know they're Marley and Marley in this version, but the two old wisecracking guys that used to sit in the gallery all the time, casting them as Marley and Marley, brilliant, so good. Um, I, I sometimes, when I watch it, I look at it and think, what must Michael Caine have been thinking while he was doing this when he's just rocking out as like one of the only humans on the entire set? Well, yeah, obviously money, but... Um, when he's going around and he's doing all of this with just puppets, he must have just been like, this is really weird. I'm a human and I'm talking to puppets um, all the way through. I guess all of the Muppets films are like that, aren't they? I do like it. In our house, actually, um, obviously I said my mum my loves it, but in our house, uh, it's our Christmas Eve film. So every year it's our tradition. Uh, so me and my partner, uh, by the time it's kind of like Jarmas on, Baileys in hand, don't drink kids, non-alcoholic Baileys in uh, in hand, little bit of ice. That's when we know it's Christmas Eve because I'll be, as soon as as soon as soon um, school breaks up, I'll be watching Elf. Like that's, that's 20, 20th of December. First day off, I'm watching Elf. My partner's not so into Elf. Um, however... We know it's Christmas when we're both sat there watching the Muppets Christmas Carol. And actually, because it's such a tradition, I did mention earlier that we went to Bruges one Christmas. We took our portable little tiny DVD player and the Muppets Christmas Carol on DVD so that after we'd gone out for dinner and after we'd done everything Christmas Eve, we then just sort of lay on the hotel bed and we put on Muppets Christmas Carol because it's like, you know what, even though we're in a different country, even though we're on holiday, it's Christmas Eve and we have to watch The Muppets Christmas Carol. I love every single bit about that film. I'll never tire of it. That will be every Christmas Eve until I'm dead in my grave. What a wonderful Christmas film it is. Agreed. It's Statler and Waldorf is the name of the two guys, the hecklers who play Marley and Marley. Okay, uh, thank you. Yeah. Statler and Waldorf is a constant reference point for me in my lessons and there might be some students who are listening who I've called Statler and Waldorf because it's usually that 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 table where you get two friends together and they're just me 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 and you just go you two pack it in like Statler and Waldorf sat at the front of the class like leave it off I'm stealing uh, that I'm gonna use that <laughs> Uh, yeah, Muppets Christmas Carol was one that I was watching a lot as a kid, and I don't think I've seen much recently. It's not on my list, but I reckon it probably would be somewhere around there if I went back to it. But you're right with all these bleeding adaptations of Christmas Carol. Like, just there's what, just pick one. It's the same story. And to be honest, actually, and I think it might be because it's fresh because I've just done it with some of your 10s. When I was watching Gremlins, that really antagonistic character who goes around and sort of says to somebody, oh, I'm not going to give you any, you know, leave off on your rent or anything like that. I was like, they're throwing Scrooge in here. They're getting a Scrooge subplot in here. But yeah, it just reminded me of that. Good pick, Gemma. So, Oi, you're number three. Uh, you've mentioned this uh, very briefly, and you actually uh, it's a little bit upsetting because you said this didn't actually have that much of an impact on you. Because I remember seeing this advertised everywhere and think, and it was right in that teenage two two Kufel school era where I was like, oh no, this just looks. This is probably going to be terrible. And this, in and of itself, would be a great like little list for me to just compile and get on YouTube of films my girlfriend has made me watch that I didn't want to watch, that then blew me away. And it's off for Christmas. Off for Christmas, I thought it was just going to be some weird paint-by-numbers Christmas film, and everything about it is incredible. You've got that Aardman animation look, even though it's not actually claymation. It's a very unique look to the animation style. And... Every single performance in Arthur Christmas 
is genuinely one of the best performances that particular actor has given. It's not the best in a lot of cases, but James McAvoy as Arthur is unbelievable. His pure, like, he somehow manages to out Christmas joy Buddy the Elf in how much he loves Christmas. It's unbelievable. And he's just doing it with his voice. Hugh Laurie as his brother Steve is... When you're watching it through the first time, you're thinking, oh, Steve's going to be the villain. You just know he's going to be the villain. And he isn't. You get the, uh, you get where he's coming from. Jim Broadbent as the Santa at the time and Bill Nye as Grand Santa as Santa's dad. They're all absolutely unbelievable. And, the, and it's such a good story because none of them are completely right. So none of their opinions are... Like, if you followed any one of them, it things would be done wrong. So it, it actually highlights the fact that one man on a sled cannot deliver presents to the entire world. And the opening scene, you've basically got the elves dressed up in SWAT gear, subtly breaking into people's houses and delivering, like, presents. And at the command centre of uh, the S1, which is this giant city-sized flying saucer of a sled... You've got Steve who's in control of it because he's like the elder son of Santa and Santa's getting on a bit and he's a little bit doddery now and he's like, oh, 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 oh. And he like puts one present down. It's like, oh, a job well done. And Arthur's like looking at everything in wonder and Grand Santa's, he wants to do it the old way. Um, it's just every single joke is incredible. And it's got such heartwarming moments in it when Arthur realises that his you might not be perfect and Steve realizes the same thing and when Santa realizes I'm I I need to let go of this like yes this is my identity but I can't do this anymore and I've got a wife that I need to spend time with um just the heartwarming moments in this film are they get me every single time and for such for a film to do that when because I watched this I think the first time I watched this I was at university and in, I didn't meet Georgia until I was twenty one so I was I was older when I watched this and for it to have had this much of an impact on me is really surprising and it's just it has become a staple this is some this is now one of the regular things me and Georgia will watch at Christmas and occasionally Georgia in the middle of April will look at me really guiltily and be like, can we please watch All for Christmas? It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I like I, I do the year okay, but it's it's such a good film. Um like like all the character all the characters get really, really, really satisfying character arcs. Um and the jokes are just hysterical. <laughs> so yeah, all for Christmas. It is a shame they didn't have as big an impact. Maybe if you give it another chance, but maybe. Uh, I think to be honest, I think Amy showed it to Ruby last year because Amy, I think like like all of us, gets to a point where we get into December and it's oh, should we watch a Christmas film? Should we watch? And she's looking for things that are on TV, and I'm sure they watched it last year. I think, I mean, we watched it at the cinema when it was out on a very Christmassy day where we ended up going buying a Christmas tree at the same time and all that kind of. And it, yeah, I just I don't know. I don't know what it was. It might have just been I don't know. Maybe I felt I was a bit too old for a cartoon at that point. And then, you know, looked back at it and thought, what are you being so daft for? Um, you've just bought a Batman on Blu-ray. That's what you're on about. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. So my number three is, I think, a little bit of a left-field choice. I don't think it's going to be anything that's on either of your lists. Um, and again, it's a film that's set at Christmas, but actually there's a little bit of a justification as to why it is a Christmas film. Uh, this is... Uh, the film Rent, which is based on the musical of the same name. Um, and I'm a big fan of Rent. I, it's, it's one of my favourite musicals, not to spoil the musical top ten that is going to be on the way soon. Um, but this is released in 2005, and if you're unfamiliar, it features six of the original Broadway cast members under the shadow of the AIDS um, pandemic during uh, the late 80s and early 90s. And this takes place in the East Village of New York in 1989, going into 1990. And I think similar to Batman Returns, it's one of these where it's not specifically about Christmas, but set in a musical. So it's stage musical first and foremost, and then it's subsequent film adaptation at Christmas with messages of love, loss, grief and togetherness at Christmas time works really effectively. 
And it then creates this really bittersweet narrative device because we love the fact that you get these main characters of Roger and Mark and Collins, all friends, all together again at Christmas. You can get that that chemistry from the opening scene where they're all back together again. But then Collins meets Angel. They have their really nice relationship that's filled with love during Christmas. But then it then unfolds the way that it does, not to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. And again, it's that kind of mix of emotions and the kind of, I suppose, two sides that you could get at Christmas time, the kind of loneliness in one aspect and then that idea of, and I think maybe this is why I pull into it a little bit as, as well, is that um, I spend a lot of time with my two best mates. We've known each other since school. We've all now got partners. We all, the six of us, spend a lot of time together. We cooked for my mate and his wife last year for Christmas. And it's not who your family is. It's who you're choosing your family to be at that point. And this, again, is coming around at Christmas. And again, at first I thought I'm a shoehorning it in just because I like it. But then I thought a little bit more about the, you know, the themes and the messages. I listened to some of the music again this morning. And yeah, I just think it's a great film. It's my number three. Um, my number one and number two are my heavy hitters. So we'll get to them in just a little bit. But that's my number three. Do you prefer, have you seen the st- the act, uh, the stage version? Have you seen it on stage? Yeah, well, I think I, kind of, because they referred to it and they kind of um, publicised it as the concert tour. Yeah. And I think what they did yeah. is they stripped away some of the acting bits in between, mm. but then primarily just sang through everything that you get. And that was, I think, the best version that I'm going to get anytime soon. Possibly, because I've, I've seen, I mean, it was an Amdram version, admittedly, yeah. but... Um, I don't think I think the film actually got a bit of flack because it doesn't mm. flow the way the stage show does. But I much prefer the way the film flows. Yeah, I love I'm the mu- film. I much I much prefer the way the film flows, and uh, we'll probably dissect it a bit more when we talk about musicals. Yeah, Collins is a bucket list role for me. Oh, Collins is the one. When I was listening to the music again this morning, I mean, to be honest, being in an empty house and just singing as loudly as I can do on yeah. my own, um, and mm-hmm. and as you and then you as you go through singing the song Rent and you're swapping from Roger to Mark to Collins, yeah, and you're thinking which one of them is better? Would which one would my voice be better suited to mm. in the absolute pipe dream that a forty-year-old Adam is going to star in an Amdram version? <laughs> of yeah i've gone for collins before and the audition song was i'll cover you the reprise version yes and it's that is the thing is with the reprise and i use this in my teaching so when we look at musicals as conventions i always talk about social commentary now generally every film genre has some kind of social commentary to it i think musicals do it really well and the three that i kind of flag up are um rocky horror picture show Mm-hmm. talking socially about the time that it was setting dream girls talking about corporate yeah. greed and all that kind of stuff and then rent for love loss grief aids all that kind of stuff and i show the i'll cover you reprise and generally the reaction to it is you get the boys who are maybe still trying to find the feet with their emotions and go what is singing whatever and then you get and then tip the girls who go oh that's that's really like heartbreaking the way yeah yeah um and obviously they don't necessarily have the context to that Mm. but i feel like that's a really good clip to contextualize what i'm talking about going into number twos uh gemma if you want to kick us off with your number two this this is a nightmare this is my nightmare because to have this at number two means that it's not a number one I still don't know if this is my number one or if this is my number two. Um, so, uh, yeah, with a heavy heart, I'm putting this at number two, but it might be a number one. It's Home Alone. Um, it's got everything in it that we've spoken about. It's got the Christmassy feeling. It's got family. What a massive, massive theme of family that it's got in there with uh, family going away and him thinking he wants his family to go away but then actually realizing that things are a little bit rubbish even with the older brother he still wants him back um so yeah the slapstick comedy in it everything that you can see coming which is so obvious but just still hilarious and then when you've watched it for what probably 30 years now for me it's still hilarious when the iron hits him in the face and when he puts his foot on the nail all of those things about that slapstick doesn't get old um 
again the family theme with the lack of family for the old guy um i have a problem with home alone too because i just think that that's a, a rehash of exactly the same story i was listening to your 90s one the other day and talking about the woman in the park and i just completely agree it's just a complete rehash of that story and I, I don't really think it even needed to be made that that was just a, a money spinner i think um i think also there's the element of watching it and being a kid uh, and thinking, yeah, that would just be amazing. Imagine having like the whole pizza to yourself. Imagine being able to watch any film that you want or do whatever you want uh, throughout the whole day and nobody can tell you what. And then the reality of that actually wearing off. I love the music in it. Um, when when it, when the song, The Carol of the Bells comes on, um, I don't know if you know which one that is, but it's he starts to hear it after he's been into the church and he realizes it's getting late. So it's the tune that goes, da, 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 da. it starts to turn at that. You get this panicky feeling and he's running home and you're like, oh my God, yeah, it's all about to go off, isn't it? Um, I love that. I love that piece of music. We went to Dunham Massey one Christmas Eve a couple of years ago uh, and there was a light show with that music going and the lights were moving in time with that music and it was so powerful but there's no way you can't hear that and go that's that's home alone yeah you can't hear it without hearing home alone um yeah i love the way that it turns at that bit and then you you start to feel that anxiety with him um and then just you know the good overcoming bad kind of thing but they're not even particularly bad they're just such lovable criminals aren't they um you can't hate them they're not scary in any way uh, and just the inventiveness of Kevin, just by putting the basketball cutout on the train and just all those little things, you're like, that was a brilliant idea. Well done, Kevin. Every every part of that film is every bit about Christmas, I think. Um, and, and yeah, it, it it is Christmas. When you watch Home Alone, that is Christmas. Kevin, Definitely. do you mean Jigsaw? Thanks. What? Have you not heard that theory that Kevin grew up to be Jigsaw? Oh, in yeah. Films? Forget all that business. <laughs> And there's all, I remember watching it at one point and realized, you know, the main theme, like, that sounds very similar to This Is Halloween. Very similar to This Is Halloween. Came first, though. Yeah. So Danny Elfman's yeah. a little plagiarist. Yeah. Little plagiarist, Danny Elfman. I mean, but, I don't think it's any secret to say, and I'm not, I'm, I won't spoil it, but it's going to come. It's, 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 it's on my list. It's, yeah. Um, through things that I've said in the past and all that kind of stuff. My worry, my worry is that somebody whose name rhymes with small or ball, right, is going to drop the bombshell that it's not on his list and that it was on his honourable mentions and that... Remember when we did this podcast and Gemma, you said you can only assume that everyone's number one is Goonies because yeah, it's not... Yeah, I can't get over that. I mean, I'm just assuming that Ollie's number two or at least number one is Home Alone. Uh, <laughs> And I'm going to assume that it's not. <laughs> then at that time, you will then know how I felt when I, I realised that you would all just completely bypass Goonies. I'm still not over that. I'm still in therapy, sitting there knowing that I work with people and that you're in control of children's lives. I don't know how good the Goonies is, and yet people entrust you with, with their children, okay, with the education of their children. That's RE101 in our department. Okay, it's like Goonies is the best. Don't argue it. Okay, let's do the RE. <laughs> and the film studies curriculum, not just children's lives, but what you're teaching them for film as well. Yeah, quite. I, I, honestly, <laughs> I think we need to have some he heavy questioning here over your suitability. Get some QA in. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn and walk you. <laughs> You've not mentioned Goonies. What are you all about? <laughs> Inadequate. <laughs> Right, I've manufactured this little bit because, and this might give it away, my two and one are intertwined. So I'm going to go and do my two and then go straight into my number one. So, Ollie, your number two, please. Make um, good choices. <laughs> uh, this might put a bit of a smile on Gemma's face and fill Adam with dread. Um, because my number two is Muppets Christmas Carol by Brian Hansen, uh, done in 1992. Gemma covered it really, really well. This is my earliest Christmas film that I can remember. This is the one that, from my childhood, I kept on watching. And then 
you just hear the the jingle bells as the credits are rolling, and then you hear the instrumental, and it's just like, yes, this is Christmas. Um, and you two t seem to, through visually anyway, take quite a cynical view of Michael Caine and what he was doing. I mean, Adam more so, admittedly, because Adam was making the international symbol for money, 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 when Gemma was questioning what must he have been thinking. Um, I don't think there's a better Scrooge ever. I don't think any film version of Scrooge holds a candle to Michael Caine for the exact reason that Gemma has kind of highlighted. This is a man who is acting against puppets made of felt. And you believe for every second that he is on screen that that is Ebenezer Scrooge. Michael Caine gives the performance of his life in that film. Like, if he was acting that against human actors you would no one would question it and that's something that frankly makes it easier i think it is michael kane's best performance by a long long way and as Gemma hinted at as well all of the muppets themselves are perfectly cast the fact that you've got kermit as bob cratchit and then they do that typical kids film slash disney film where miss piggy is mrs cratchit so the daughters all look like miss piggy and the sons all look like kermit yeah because they wouldn't have some hybridized mess of the two that would be nightmare fuel. <laughs> um, I love um, I love Gonzo as Charles Dickens, constantly breaking the fourth wall and actually taking excerpts from the book. And a lot of the characters, you know, unless they're making those kind of off the cuff, modern, more modern jokes that make it quite a timeless film, weirdly enough, um, they are taking dialogue verbatim from the book. You can tell it's this very old style of English that can come across as a little bit awkward, but they're just taking it from the book verbatim. The set design is incredible. It looks incredibly foreboding, incredibly dark, incredibly miserable and bleak, which London will have done at the time because it's meant to be, you know, Christmas Carol was meant to be a social commentary about the difference between the rich and the poor in London at the time. And... You know, you get the it's incredibly foreboding whilst Scrooge is, you know, miserable. The musical numbers are all sensational. They're absolutely brilliant, especially uh, It Feels Like Christmas, as sung by the ghost of Christmas Present. Just and the opening number, Scrooge, it's a great introduction to our villain and everybody hates him and it's hysterical. Um, and you feel a gut punch when they stop showing Tiny Tim, even though they've introduced him as this little felt puppet. They, you know, it's a gut punch for you when he dies. And Kermit and Miss Piggy, despite the fact that they have very limited facial emotion, you feel incredibly sad that Tiny Tim has died. And Michael Caine just breaking down in front of effectively the Grim Reaper as he's at the graveyard, just everything about that that is that's my most christmasy christmas film i admit my number one is not as christmasy but um this is easily my most christ my favorite properly undisputably christmasy christmas film because it hits me right in the childhood the songs are fantastic it's a classic story um, and the Muppets just do what they do best in terms of elevating that and adding humour to it. The only criticism, I guess, would be young Scrooge. There's a deleted scene between young Scrooge and the woman he loves, and there's a whole song that's there. And it's like, this is a very short film. Why are you cutting out, like, a, at most a four-minute song number that really would have added... It explains why he becomes who he is. Exactly. I always say the same thing. Why is that not on it? Because I don't know at what point I, I managed to watch that and on what DVD or video I've seen it. Because um, I don't remember seeing it at the cinema. And then the fact that on the version we've got now, and I always say to my partner as well, there's a bit missing there. And he's absolutely heartbroken mm. that she finishes with him. Um, and that shows how he becomes Scrooge, how he becomes such a miserable man. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Ollie. I don't know why they took it out because it would have just been a few more minutes of the film. And it's it's not like it's, you know, Titanic or something where, you know. It's already two hours long. Yeah, <laughs> quite. But going back to what I said about what Howard Ashman said, I don't think he was saying it, I think he was just generally answering the question, but if you can't say it, if, you, if it's too much to say it to get it across, you sing it. 
And that's, it's like you said, it's the formative moment of Scrooge to becoming the character that we know. But that being the case, the film we do get is still unbelievable. It's it's still, I just get giddy every time I hear that opening. Just like Gemma's head's going to the side there because it's just so Christmassy. Like me, I think, and I'll talk about it a bit in my number one as well. Music is a massive emotional trigger for me. Like that is what can make something feel a certain way. That's what can make me feel scared. That's what can make me feel happy and feel sad, feel Christmassy. And the music in this screams Christmas, absolutely screams Christmas. So uh, getting ready for Adam's Rage. But number two is Muppets Christmas Carol. No, I think to be honest, you've both convinced me that I need to watch this again this year. And that maybe sit down with Ruby with it and just be like, yeah, let's what let's give, let's give this one a go. Um, okay, so would be no surprise, I think, to anybody. My number two is Home Alone two. My number one is Home Alone. Now, the reason why I've put them together is originally Home Alone two was quite far down my list. It was probably about number five or number six. But then I thought about what what is it that i do at christmas what is it that i do every single year without fail and that is on christmas eve i will watch home alone i will then make tea and then i will watch home alone too so they are my christmas films that is what i do every single year now i've got ruby into it ruby loves kevin she thinks he's fantastic and she wants to watch it over and over and over again for everything that Gemma said about home alone one absolutely on point the the comedic elements of it, the slapstick elements of it, I laugh every single year at the same things, sometimes different things, as if I've never seen it before. I love, and I, I always think about this when we watch it, Joe Pesci, because his instant reaction is to swear that he just goes, and it's just like, it's all that, that own little language that he kind of came up with himself. And then every single year without fail, and Amy hates me for it every single year, is spider crawls on Daniel Stern's chest. And I go, you know, he had he couldn't scream then, so he just had to make the, the he had to open his mouth and pretend to scream because he would have frightened the real life tarantula. And I sell her every single year without fail. And I think last year she went, Ruby, do you know that he, he wasn't actually allowed to scream when he did that? Um, and then when we get into Home Alone 2, yeah, it's not as good of a film as the first one, which is why technically I'm on list it's second. But it turns everything up to 11. It's it's all ramped up. And again, I'm still laughing at the slapstick moments in that. And one video that I think almost contextualised it, but then made it even more funny for me, is I think it might have been Screen Junkies. They did something like on YouTube, real-life injuries or whatever, and they counted up how, how many times the villains would have died. And it was like, you know, it goes, hematoma, ding, ding, ding. And it goes, concussion, ding, 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 and all that kind of... And it's just like when he's chucking rocks off the roof and bricks off the roof to Marv, every time he hits him in the head, dead, 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 dead. And it's just, it's so funny. And I think that is just, it's Christmassy. It makes me feel Christmassy. The music in it makes me feel Christmassy. Is massive Christmas tree. The fact that now in this little tra- tradition that I've got, where I started this, I think when I was in college, where I would watch it on Christmas Eve, and then when me and Amy moved in together, it was like right, so Amy we're watching this on Christmas Eve, and then when Ruby was born, it was like right, well we're doing this, and even last year, Amy's mum stayed with us on Christmas Eve, um, just so like we could spend Christmas Day together and we cooked for her and all that kind of stuff. She was watching Home Alone with us and Home Alone too on Christmas. It's like, no, you stay in. This is what you've got to do. And then now the gap between the two films is let's order a big cheese pizza and we'll have a big cheese pizza for the second one. This is my tradition. This is my Christmas. These are why these are my one and two. And that's it. I, I mean, I've, I've gushed about it on the on the 90s podcast. There's probably going to be other podcasts, especially when, and I thought about this, my top three so Rent, Home Alone 2 and Home Alone were all directed by Chris Columbus, who I think is a director who does not get a look in at all in modern... He's, he's done so much. He directed Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. He directed Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. He's done so many... Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, stuff that like we've spoken a lot about on these podcasts. So that's why, eventually, when I get around to it, I'm going to do an author episode just for Chris Columbus because I think he deserves it. And I'm just going to talk about all these films again over and over and over again. 
So, I'm now going to make a guess. And let's just see how far we get with this. I'm going to now pass over to Ollie, who's going to give you his number one, which I suspect is Die Hard. And then Gemma's going to give her number one, which I think is Elf. So, Ollie, you're number one. Um, yeah, Home Alone was honourable mentions for me. Disgusting. Um, Just sort yourself out, it, man. It was honourable mentions. I, yeah, I think that style of film, I might be wrong when I say, and you can roll because, um, it just it, again it feels quite John Hughesy, and it's becoming more and more apparent to me that that type of film I really don't care about. <laughs> I do not care about your Ferris Bueller's. I do not care about your Breakfast Clubs. I do not care Sorry, about. Uh, why have we got him on this podcast? What are we working for there, Gemma? Like and... just to go back to the nineties podcast. Do you remember what? Did you hear when Sam said that he watched Ferris Bueller and didn't like it? Yes. <laughs> what? What what's going on here? I thought I was getting like minded people on. I don't. It was I'm, just no. I'm not quite that controversial. I do not dislike Home Alone or Ferris Bueller or any film like that. They just do not hold me particularly. They don't grab me at all. And you're talking about um, a director in Chris Columbus who, and you are right to talk about it, who does not get the praise that they deserve because Chris Columbus is responsible for some incredible films. But when you've got the guy for my number one, who also directed Predator, who directed The Hunt for Red October, who directed Last Action Hero, The Thomas Crown Affair, the first... I'm sorry. John McTiernan is easily one of the most overlooked directors of the modern era because, yeah, Damn straight, my number one is Die Hard. I flat out said it in the 80s podcast. I said it then. I said that it was the best Christmas film in the 80s podcast. It was my second favourite 80s film behind my favourite Empire Strikes Back. And this, at the risk of getting booted off the call, I'm sorry, if you're going to sit there and say that this isn't a Christmas film, neither's Home Alone. These are identical in how Christmassy they are, okay? They have pretty much the same kind of motifs throughout the music, throughout the setting. The only difference is, really, that there's guns. Um, what's in what's it in uh, Die Hard? You're telling me that if Kevin McAllister didn't have access to his dad's 12-gauge, that he wouldn't have been getting that out and dealing with the wet bandits that way? Yeah. They are identical. Adam's turned his back. He's turned yeah. his back on it. I'm telling you now, it's a Christmas film. It has Christmas <laughs> motifs throughout. The music, like I said before, music really hits it for me. And throughout every single bit of, um, you know, the music, every single bit of the soundtrack backing everything, there's little jingle bells throughout the whole thing. They flat out use Christmas tracks throughout the whole thing to punctuate certain areas. It's either that or Ode to Joy, to the point where Ode to Joy now makes me feel really Christmassy. Where you start hearing da, 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 da. That feels really Christmassy to me. The characters are all constantly referring to Christmas. You've got Theo, the tech geek, who's like doing, who's looking at how the SWAT are coming in and he's there going, was the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring except the four guys coming in, two by two formation, and Alan Rickman, as Hans Gruber saying, is Christmas, Theo, it's a time for miracles. They're all constantly referring to Christmas. Your argument might be that it doesn't make you feel particularly Christmassy. I genuinely view that as a strength of this film, because a lot of other Christmas films, but most proper Christmas films, it feels weird if you watch them any other time of year. I kind of hinted at that with Arthur Christmas when it, you know, when Georgia comes up to me in kind of like in the middle of April or May, it's like, can we please watch Arthur Christmas? It feels out of place. And that's one thing I love about Die Hard. You can watch it any time of the year. And when it is, when it does happen to be Christmas, when it does happen to be that festive period, you feel more Christmassy because of it. Because it has those elements that you would want in a, in a Christmas film of family. He's trying to reconnect with his estranged wife. He's gone 
to the opposite side of the United States because he works in New York. He's gone to L.A. to be with his kids and be with his family for Christmas. And you've got those, like I said, the motifs absolutely run throughout. There's references up the kazoo towards it being Christmas and being set around Christmas. Um, and in the same way that I think Adam felt, may, might have felt bad about putting Rent in there because it's like, oh, it, it's kind of Christmassy, but yeah, I love it so much as a film. I'm citing that argument here for Die Hard because this is this is the film... Like most of these films, especially in the top four or five, I can watch again and again. I can watch again and again. This is the one that I don't feel out of place watching when I when it doesn't feel cold outside and when I've not got my advent calendar in front of me. And yeah, Die Hard. It's, I don't think, because it's it, this isn't me being contrarian because I think it's now pretty 50-50 whether this is a Christmas film or not. Like Batman Returns is a more contrarian choice than this. And a lot of the stuff you were saying, Adam, and I agreed with it all, but a lot of the stuff you were saying about it kind of flipping genre on its head and this doesn't quite go the whole way in it being about orphans and subverting the genre that way, but it is still, it's the extreme end of a family trying to stick together, ultimately. So before before you do actually uh, cl click on a button that boots me out the call <laughs> die hard <laughs> i'm happy to field any questions <laughs> i wish i'd bumped it off and put planes and trains on now <laughs> oh this, like i've said this right and it's absolutely fine it is a christmas film i will go with you on that right i'm not having that it's effectively a Christmas film because Home Alone is as well. No, no, it's got much. Home Alone has got much more narrative in Christmas and all that kind of stuff than Die Hard. It just so happens that Die Hard is set at Christmas. Anyway, it's about family that ends, and it doesn't have. It has. It has far less neglectful parents. Yeah, far well, less. Nobody's have parents it. are perfect, are they? Right. Like, we didn't forget any of the kids. <laughs> So, I'm just throwing that out there. You're just bragging now. That's You're just what you bragging. think. <laughs> Do you not remember little cousin Billy? Where has he gone to? <laughs> we don't talk about Billy. This is it. So, you've just constantly forgotten him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's gone now. He's gone. Poor Billy. <laughs> right. Gemma, you're number one. Well, it was well predicted. Yeah. So for my top of my Christmas uh, uh, list, I chose a Christmas film, Oliver. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was Elf. Um, I did I did talk about this, didn't I, a little bit earlier on, uh, where I said this is the start of the Christmas holidays for me. So as teachers, we're fully aware that we spend the whole of December saying it's not Christmas yet, calm down. No, we're not having a fun lesson. This is the millionth time I've been asked. You've been asking me since we came back after October half term. No, we're not having a fun lesson. Um, so we spend the whole of December trying to keep the kids calm. That first day is where I go, it's now Christmas. So this is like our first day of the holidays. I'll be watching that. I'll use, I'll make a little gingerbread latte using a little bit of syrup that I've got. I'll sit there, the fire will be on. I've usually got to the house, the house to myself at this point, and this is when Christmas starts. So just a quick one for you, uh, Adam, when you say about trying to keep uh, the little one calm, because um, she's just being basically like a little version of Elf. I'll come round, or you can drop her over here, right? And we can just do that together, because I am like him too. So me and Ruby, we can just go absolutely mental, and you can get the, the Christmas wrapping done. That's fine. I'm happy to have her. Um, I love it. The humour is without a doubt about the contrast, the opposite. You mentioned about James Kahn earlier on. I think James Kahn is absolutely essential in it because they are, it's about a spectrum, isn't it? So he comes from this fluffy marshmallow kind of world and he goes to probably one of the harshest, most grittiest places on earth. He's right in the center of Manhattan. So the, the humour comes from that innocence of him being in such a, an uninnocent kind of world. And just the way that he takes everything at face value. The scene with the coffee shop. There's a sign outside it that says it's the world's best cup of coffee. So he goes in there and he's like, congratulations, guys. Get it. What's the best cup of 
he's got these guys looking at him like, what? It's not even like in Manhattan, you know, you know that it's somewhere just down some crappy side street somewhere. That's so funny, him him forcing himself not to touch the bubblegum on the railings. Um, even when he's, it, he plays it so well that even when he's made to wear a suit to work, anybody else in a film that's got a suit on just looks like they're wearing a suit. But he looks wrong in it. He looks like he shouldn't be wearing it, even though it's a normal suit. And I love that when the guy's putting whiskey in his coffee. And he's like, ooh, syrup and coffee. And then they just lie there in the postal room and just get hammered. Uh, and so he just causes chaos down there. Every single bit of that film is Christmas. Him him just dressed, because he's such a big guy, you know, and dressed in these yellow tights. When he gets hit by the car and he stands up and says, sorry. sorry. Yeah, it's just brilliant. I love it when he, he loses his mind when somebody mentions Santa's going to come. I know him. Um, me and my nieces love this film. My eldest niece, particularly Emily, uh, she's in her twenties. Uh, she absolutely. We could speak in quotes and have a conversation in it, like "Bye, buddy. I hope you find your dad." And we would just know what we were talking about. We could send each other text messages with quotes from that film, uh, and and we'd be able to communicate in that as a as a language in its own right. Uh, it's it's so Christmassy. I love how hyper he is. Um, and again, it's that juxtaposition because you'd only see that in a toddler, but you see it in him because he just loves Christmas so much. And then that's just so beautiful, the way that he kind of softens all the New Yorkers and he gets them singing. Um, he gets them singing a song, doesn't he, in Central Park and he softens them all. Uh, yeah, Elf epitomises the Christmas break for me. Uh, and when that goes on, Ollie said it a minute ago, you don't watch it. I'm not going to watch it now, even though it's awesome. I'm not going to watch it in July. I'm going to watch it when I know this is Christmas. Um, because for me, it, it is Christmas. Elf is, Elf is Christmas, definitely. Even though it's even one of the new ones, isn't it? You know, it's not an old mm. film. It's not a classic, uh, but it's a new classic. Uh, so for me, everything about Christmas is Elf. It wouldn't be Christmas now without Elf. And that's coming from an RE teacher that knows about Jesus and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, I could take Jesus out of this and just have Elf. <laughs> <laughs> And it's he still gets, Christmas. He even, he even gets the teacher vibe as well, doesn't he? Where his stepmom's like, oh, how did you sleep? Great. I got a full 40 minutes. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> and when he tries to hug the raccoon. <laughs> Does somebody need a hug? <laughs> and when he keeps phoning, when he keeps phoning his dad and he's like, okay, I'll call you again in five minutes. I've done that when I've been like off sick for weeks and just, you know, in the house all day, just phoning my partner going, what you doing? Okay, I'll call you again in five minutes. And they're like, you really don't need to. You don't need to. I'm at work. I'll see you tonight. <laughs> oh, yeah. I love complain. it. Uh, just a disclaimer, the Christmas wrapping that Gemma was talking about would be presents for my wife, not for Ruby, because they're wrapped by Father Christmas. Yeah, yeah, and all, yeah, and yeah, all the ones yeah. you'll buy for me, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah totes. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm happy because for the first time of us doing one of these podcasts, we have a top ten. We have a shared top ten. Um, admittedly, nine and ten are including honourable mentions, so... Nine and ten, swap them around, however, way, which way you feel, would be planes, trains, and automobiles and gremlins. Mm -hmm. And then we go in any order you would like Die Hard, um, Muppets Christmas Carol, Batman Returns, The Holiday, The Grinch, Nightmare Before Christmas, Home Alone, and our shared number one would be Elf because yeah. it was the only film that was on all three of our lists. So that must mean that that is the best Christmas film. Thank you very much for listening and thank you once again to Gemma and Oliver for another great and varied top 10. I'll be back next week with another genre episode, this time looking at the conventions of the musical genre. In the meantime, you can help support Farrandon Film by following us on Twitter at Farrandon Film, by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Farrandon Film and leaving a five-star review at your favourite podcast provider. Stay safe, look after each other and I'll see you next time. <laughs>